in a car, in a hike, somewhere. You ever gotten so lost, you felt like, where is that well-beaten path? I know it's right around the next turn, but it wasn't there. And no matter how hard you tried, you found like, you just felt like you were lost. You know, it's happened to me more than once, but the one that's etched most indebitably on my memory is a maiden voyage that I made to Eastern Long Island when I was visiting Debbie when we were dating. Uh, I had to work late that day. I worked for Messiah College at the time, and so I got on the road around 5 o'clock for a five-hour trip that took about eight. There was a few other complications that made the journey difficult because it was over 26 years ago. Number one, I had never driven through or around New York City before, but that wasn't stopping me. I was in love. (laughs) Route 78 was not complete into New Jersey, yet making Newark a place not just to drive around but through at that time as you had to go down on on Route 1 and 9. The only GPS in those days was a Pep Boys Rand McNally Road Atlas. Remember those days? (laughs) And I had marked it up with a highlighter and I had all my directions down, but that was it. And the cell phone was simply a twinkle in some engineer's eye back then. There were no cell phones to stop and call somebody on. Around midnight, I needed to make a fuel stop and had to get off the expressway near Newark, New Jersey. It's not a good place for a novice driver and a VW Rabbit to get off the road, but I did it. (laughs) After successfully fueling up and heading back to what I thought was the direction of the expressway, I found myself stuck. Circling the block at least a half dozen times or more, I finally stopped to ask directions, only to find out that each person that I encountered that night had never taken English as a second language course. (laughs) I was in another country in Newark, New Jersey. No one spoke my language and I did not speak theirs. After about an hour of people giving me the most interesting hand motions, directions, and even one guy using some very interesting body language, I figured out where I had gone wrong and I headed back down to the end of the street to a small on-ramp that looked like it led to nowhere, especially since there were no road signs marking it at all. In desperation, I said a short prayer and I took the ramp only to find that it led in the right direction. Unfortunately for me, someone had stolen the road sign to get back onto Route 78. That happens in the city. And the only way I could tell there wasn't a right road was to look back over my shoulder to see what the route was headed the other way. And then I knew I'm back on the well-beaten path. I'm on my way to Long Island. I'm on the way to see the love of my life. I was lost, and the only way to get back on track was to take a leap of faith to get back on the well-beaten trail. I was without a traveling companion, a road map, someone to speak my own language, and even without a road sign. But I was able to find my way out of what seemed to be a desperate situation. The Bible paints a similar scenario for us as it's related to our spiritual life in Christ. I want us to read these words together from the prophet Isaiah that were penned for us long ago. It's in your outline. It starts with, we all. Can you guys pull it up there for us? Maybe not. <laughs> Could you guys pull up the Isaiah 53.6 passage? should be right at the beginning of the outline. It's not there. I have it here. Let's read. I'll read it to you. <laughs> We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When I read this, I see us being people 
who down through the ages have encountered this problem in our spiritual journey with God, that there are some times where we get off the well-beaten pathway and we can't seem to find our way back onto it. It says that we all like sheep have gone astray. I can't help but notice that inclusive nature that relates all people to sin. All of us at some point or another in life find ourselves off the beaten path. We're lost, we're wayward wanderers, no longer wholehearted worshipers, and we wonder how in the world did I get here in the first place? In some sense, it feels really good to say, hey, we've all blown it, right? That beginning of that verse, we all have gone astray. It feels really healthy and good, confessing that none of us are exempt from wandering away from God. But the next phrase is the most and more, it has more of an indictment and a sting to it as we read it when it rolls off our tongue. Each of us, and we can put our name in there, has turned to what? Our own individual way. That's a little harder to take. But we have it clearly here. All of us are guilty And each of us are guilty as charged when it comes to taking a path that leads away from the creator that formed us. The classic hymn of the church puts it this way. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, take and seal it for your courts above. So you're saying, okay, Pastor Joe, you've made your point to all of us. We're all sinners. We came here. You've beat up on us. We now know that. And you're a sinner too, standing before us. All have sinned. Each of us have gone our own way. So I want to talk this morning about how to find your way back to God when you feel lost, when you feel alone, when you feel distant from him. There's a way to find the on-ramp. There's a way to take a step of faith. There's a way to get back on that well-beaten path with God. In the first few chapters of the New Testament book of Romans are of great help to those who are trying to find their way back to God. So let's go ahead and look at this this morning and and see just a couple of things that can help us get back on that path with God. Finding my way back demands that I, number one, take sin as seriously as God does. Take sin as seriously as God does. Romans is probably one of the New Testament books that contains most of the main theology of the New Testament in just one book. And so it is loaded for bear. It is like a double-barreled shotgun that's got like more and more and more cartridges in it as you move back the barrel. And so as you read it this summer, don't be overwhelmed. Just stop and take in this and then learn from the next passage of Scripture. And so in Romans 1.18 and forward, in, up in through chapter 4, The writer is telling us about God and telling us about how God is intolerant of sin because of the effects of sin. It says in Romans 1, 18 through 23, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since they may be known about, so since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, 
But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. In order for you to get your hands around this passage of Scripture, you need to get your mind around three words, and I want you to circle them in that first verse. Circle the word wrath. Circle the word, the word godlessness. And circle the word wickedness. Three words. Wrath. So I want to start with wrath. Sometimes when we think of wrath, we think of capriciousness. We think of just blowing it. We think of somebody who we're working with or doing something with or we're riding in the car with and something happens, we turn on a word and boom, they explode, right? That's what we think of wrath. Boom, explosive nature of anger. Capricious, just happen at any moment and boom, all of a sudden our head's blown off and we don't really know what happened there. And sometimes when we think of God, we think of wrath the same way, but that's not true. The wrath of God is much more calculated than that. God doesn't just get upset with you and angry with you at some given moment because you did something wrong at the last minute. You made the wrong turn, the wrong choice. He's fed up you. He's had it with you. So he just blows it with you and he's ticked off at you. No, God does have wrath. And the wrath of God is something to fear. But it is not a wrath that is capricious in nature. It is a wrath that comes against sin and godlessness and wickedness in this world. And it is only a righteous and holy God can have that kind of wrath against sin. He takes sin seriously. He's not temperamental. He's not reactionary. As a matter of fact, it says that he is kind of saving up and storing back and pushing back this wrath, and he's letting his loving kindness, his hesed, his goodness, permeate the whole earth. But that God is intolerant of sin and of wickedness. The word used here for wrath, one of my professors taught me in seminary, is probably best defined as this. God's wrath is a withdrawal of God's loving kindness. That right now we live in a time of God's loving kindness in our lives and it permeates the earth. But at some point in history, there will be a time where God withdraws his loving kindness from the earth and lets us live fully with the ramifications of sin and its destructive nature. It is a withdrawal of his love and his presence and his goodness in order for us to see and the world to see the ramifications of sin and the wicked nature of it. Because sin indeed separates us from God. And God takes seriously the separating nature of sin because he made us to commune with us and to be with us. Surely it was God who said of Adam in the garden, it is not good for man to be alone. God wanted to commune with us and made us to have a relationship with him and he made us to have a living relationship with one another. God hates loneliness. He hates isolation. Therefore, he hates sin because sin builds a wall between us and God and us and other people. It is destructive. So that's what wrath is. When God withdraws his love 
and lets us live with the ramification of sin. Now, the writer here is talking about a time to come, and he's saying there are times where we feel that withdrawal. I, I, I wonder, and I can't prove this theologically, but I wonder if there are times in my own life where I have wandered so far away from God that he begins to just withdraw his presence from me a bit so I can feel the ramifications of my own sin and my separating choices and attitudes and actions in my life. Matter of fact, I, I'm, I'm more than wonder. I'm pretty sure given my journal entries in my prayer journals, that there are times for my own goodness that God is so good to me as a father that he just withdraws his presence just a bit so that Joel can see all these choices I've been making, all these attitudes that I've been having, all this sin that I'm living in is separating me from my Father in heaven who dearly wants to spend time with me, but my sin has created a wall. The second word is godlessness. Godlessness. And uh, godlessness just means that we lose our total reverence for God, that we don't seek his input anymore in the moral choices of life, that we're like Adam and Eve in the garden. We try to choose between good and evil without the input of God. That's original sin trying to choose between good and evil without the input of the Almighty God who created us and is the only one who can coach us and help us define and discern between good and evil. That's godlessness. So we just kind of ignore God. We don't have any reverence for him anymore. And then this is kind of a continuum that happens. Is when we're godless like that, we become wicked. And wickedness is this. It's injustice toward other people. Wickedness is taking the influence that God has given you and using it for your own selfish needs and desires and not using that influence to care for others and bless others the way God has blessed you and designed you to do. I submit to you, we heard about this in the news this week in Pennsylvania. Did we not? I need not say more. My brother lives in Belfont and he told me, they don't even use the name. They don't use the words. He lives three blocks from the courthouse. We would all do well to say to ourselves, let us not take the influence we have been given by God and use it to oppress and for selfish needs pull what we need. But let us take that influence back to God and fall before him and say, God, teach me how to live. Teach me how to make choices between right and wrong. Teach me not how to be a wicked person or a godless person. Lord, if need be, at times in my life, withdraw a bit so I can see the goodness of your nature and the devastating effects and sincerity of my own sin in my life. So God takes sin seriously. It's a tall order for us to take it as seriously as him, isn't it? That's a pretty tall order. I, I know that. I know it's easy for me to write it as a point in the sermon. I know it's easy for me to exegete it out of the scriptures and write it down for you. I know it's easy for me to say that. Let's just take sin as seriously as God does. But we're not God. We're not holy, 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 are we? We are prone to wander. 
we're prone to leave the God that we love. So what's it going to take for us to take sin seriously? I think we have to understand the devastating nature of sin. And at Daybreak, we've often spoken about the definition of sin, and and we've given this word, which means to miss the mark, miss the mark. And I know that many of you have been requesting on your uh, response cards that I get the flip chart back out because I'm so good at it. (laughs) And for those of you over here, we have a bullseye on there so you can see it. Sin means to miss the mark. It means to stop, you know, be maybe 50 paces away from the target. The word means in its exact nature to pull back a bow and arrow. But right here when I'm pulling it back, my caster and camber and and my leaning is a little bit off. So when I shoot the arrow, even though I'm pointing toward the middle of the target, it goes up and to the left or right or down or here or maybe all together. Misses. I've done that many times when shooting a bow and arrow. That's why I don't hunt with a bow and arrow. Or even a gun, thank you. (laughs) All of you should be happy about that. Sin means to miss the mark. It means that God has a glorious ideal for us. It means there is a center to the bullseye. It means that God fearfully and wonderfully made us and gave us influence and gave us a life where we can commune with him and bless others and reflect his glory. And right there it is, but that when we in our own attempts without God helping us line up the arrow and asking Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to help us live our life and to coach us, all of our attempts miss the mark. And we keep missing the mark and it builds up not only a missing of the mark, but it builds up a wall of separation between us and God because we're going to keep trying, right? We're hard workers. We're going to put two feet in there. I'm going to keep trying, trying to hit the mark. No, you have to ask God to come and for his Holy Spirit to train you and show you what hitting the mark looks like. What a, what a life that he crafted you to reflect his image looks like. So the outcome of the sin is to have this wall of isolation built up between us and God. But God takes it so seriously that he does something about it. And he shows us in the Godhead with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that he takes sin seriously because the Father takes sin so seriously that he devises a master plan to address the dismantling of the dividing wall, brick by brick, row by row. He will not have it. As a loving father, God chooses to not be divided from his created ones. That would never do. He took sin seriously and he came up with a plan to tear down that wall. So he speaks to the son. And the son is another proof that God takes sin seriously. And he sends him on assignment. He gives his son, Jesus Christ, to us to tear down the wall, to separate that nature of sin from us. Because it's serious. And so he sends the son to pay the penalty for our sin for all time. For anyone, anywhere who chooses to stop taking matters into their own hands and missing the mark. To anyone who chooses to let Jesus Christ come and help them hold the arrow and hold the bow and coach them and love them and let his blood cover them and pay for them. Many times they've missed the mark. And so God takes this seriously. He gives his only begotten son to all of the human race in order to what? Break down the dividing wall. Something sinless needed to be sacrificed on behalf of something sinful. And the father took seriously the sin and so he sent the son to tear down 
the wall with his own two hands, with his feet, and with his ripped open side. Furthermore, the son not only came, but when he left the earth, after he had paid the sacrifice for us, once he had paid the moral debt for our bankruptcy, it says that he sent the Holy Spirit to come and prove that God takes sin seriously. God's word says the Spirit comes to convict the world of sin by pointing out the only righteous one, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit was sent to be our guide to help us find our way back to God when we have wandered off the path and empower us to live life differently and with a new direction. And so God demonstrates through the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit how he takes sin seriously. So what can we do? We can't become the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are just his created ones. What we need to do is take seriously this sacrifice and be overwhelmed by it. And when we have wandered away from God, we need to do something called worship. In our wandering, we need to turn. We need to repent and turn back to the cross and just fall down our knees and just worship God. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking sin so seriously. Father, by putting together a plan, by sending your son as a sacrifice for me, because I've missed the mark more than once. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to not only live outside me, but in me. And empower me to walk in the pathway with you, a life-changing journey. To kneel and to worship, to turn because the world calls us all the time to other idols of worship, does it not? It calls me to worship myself. It calls me to worship material goods. It calls me to worship a certain lifestyle. It calls me to all, it's turning my head all the time, right? So repentance is a lifestyle of turning your head back to God. I'll never forget the first time that I expressed myself openly and worship to God over the sacrifice of the cross. I had grown up in a church where my church gave me many good gifts. Uh, don't, don't misunderstand me. But one of the things that we did not get involved in in our church in worship was acts of expressive worship. They were left for other churches. Now, we would sing songs, and we would pray prayers, and we were meaningful. But I remember even our pastor saying, now, in your heart, you might want to lift your hand up right now. In other words, don't do it outside your body. <laughs> but in your heart. He was well-intentioned, well-meaning. So I grew up with that. But when I became about 22, 23 years old, and I had wandered way off the path from God, I had missed the mark over and over again. I had taken the bow and arrow into my hand and thank, no, thank you, God, I don't need your coaching and your help and found that my life was a wreck, and how did I get here? And the Holy Spirit of God convicted me of my sin and showed me the righteous one, Jesus Christ, that overwhelmed me. I can remember the first time that I expressed my love to God outwardly and openly, as though he really existed and was there, just like you are this morning. I was driving a little pickup truck um, that I had, that was part of my job, and I was driving this pickup truck, and I was just, I don't even remember what song or tape I was listening to. I was listening to a cassette tape. Anybody remember cassette tapes? 
okay, you're with me. You're elderly. We're old. You know, it got a little loose, and you tighten it up with the pencil, bang on a little bit, put it in there. Now, this is new cassette tape. I don't even remember what it was. And I just, I could not physically drive the truck any further. And so I pulled off the road in one of the back roads up behind Messiah College. And there's a lot of little side roads there and places you can get off to the side. And I pulled off that side road, and I didn't know what was happening to me. I put the truck in park, and I just sat there for a moment. I just felt overwhelmed by what was the presence of God in my life. And there was a song in the tape. I don't remember what the song was. And I felt like God was saying to me, sing it out loud like I'm here. Stop just singing inside. Let it come onto the outside. And I sat there and uncontrollably had a bawling fit for about 15 to 20 minutes, maybe upwards of a half of an hour, where I was just trying to eke out words of praise before God. I need to submit to you, there are times in our life where we feel far from God and we don't feel like we should be able to turn and worship and that's the first thing we should do. When he says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, that things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of what? His glory. The only way you get a glimpse of his glory is to turn from looking at the world and turn to him and treat him like he's really there because he is and praise him and express your love and worship him Express your love to God because he's there. Sin is a serious matter because of its alienating effects. God knew that. So when he spared no expense, he gave up his son for us. Our response needs to be to to worship him. Even when it feels like I'm so far away, we need to turn and begin to worship. The next step on the pathway back to God is connected to the first one, and it's this one. Finding my way back to God demands that I trust Jesus alone to pave my pathway back to him. Go ahead and write that down. Trusting in Jesus alone to pave my my pathway back to him. You know, finding our way back to God can seem like an ominous task, right? There's something inside of us that knows that God is holy, holy, holy. I'm glad it is written down in his word. But there's something in us that knows he is above me, way above me. And I'm out of sync with him, and I don't know how to get back there, right? There's a part of us that knows God is far above and beyond us and transcendent. But he chooses to come down to where we are. So when we're out of sync to him, sometimes he just feels like I can never get back to there especially if we've been away for some time. But no matter how long or how much distance has become between us and God in our pathway, we can step back in faith toward God. It involves becoming enamored with the cross and with the Christ of the cross. And Romans 3 puts it this way. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. 
God presented Christ as a sacrificial atonement through the shedding of his own blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. God's word says this, Jesus Christ alone is the one who paves the path back. Not you, not other beliefs, not your spiritual disciplines, they help, but it's Jesus Christ alone and on him and on the person of Christ that we need to put our faith. So no matter where we've been, no matter how long we have left things done or undone that should have been done, no matter how long or short we've been away, no matter what nationality we are or religious affiliation, our pathway to God is paved through the work of the one and only Jesus Christ. He breaks down the dividing wall between us and God. And he uses rocks that once were part of that wall that kept us separated from God. He breaks it down and he uses them as paving stones to lay out a pathway. He takes sin and he redeems it. And he uses it as a pathway back to God. He uses some of our worst times in our lives and our worst failures to realize how great and gracious he is to draw us onto a pathway with him and illuminate and enlighten it and lead us on it in Jesus Christ. I want you to watch a video this morning that's just called God Loves You. It's kind of a refreshing moment here in the midst of this message and I want you to listen to it. I want you to watch the words because God does love you. And he is in the midst of drawing you back by his loving kindness, even this morning. Let's watch the video together. And so God does love us and he cares about us and that's why he takes sin so seriously because he doesn't want there to be a separation between us and him. Not one degree of it. 
You know, our vision statement at Daybreak says we're here to help people discover a life-changing journey with Jesus Christ. And one aspect of finding your way back to God is worship, but another one is prayer. Worship gets us on our knees. Prayer keeps us on our knees. Worship gets us humbled before God in all the right ways. Worship gets us broken in the right place. Many of us are broken in the wrong places. We've been broken in places that God never intended because of somebody else's sin toward us or our own sin. But there is a good place in the depths of our soul where we need to be broken. Like a maverick that wants to run off on its own, God breaks us and harnesses the best that he's placed into us to worship him. But once we get on our knees worshiping him, we need prayer. Prayer is a quiet place where you can steal away with Jesus alone and let him be your reflecting pool. When you meet with Jesus alone, give him permission, figuratively, to clear your temple. You remember when Jesus cleared the temple? He was pretty upset at the time. And Jesus does something that we don't often see in flannel graph lessons. He wields a whip. He goes into the temple, and with great strength and intention... He clears the temple of all things that would keep the common person from meeting with God face to face, eye to eye, heart to heart. There are all kinds of booths set up in the temple where people have to pay to get into God's presence. If you buy this sacrifice, you can get in further and further. And he says, no, I'm raising the set, so to speak, and I'm clearing the pathway, and I'm intolerant of people trying to make their own pathways to God. I am the pathway. I am what? The way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father, what? But by me. And so Jesus clears the temple, and then he says something that we might find strange, but it's actually very true and very poignant. He says, my house will be called what? A house of prayer for all nations. Cleans the temple, And he says, my house will be a place where everyone of all nations, no matter where they come from, what they believed in the past, if they come and believe on me, they can connect with me, and it will be a place of connection with God for all nations. Now, in the New Testament, it often tells us that we are what? We are God's temple or his residing place. It actually means we're one of God's tents that he comes to dwell in. It would be like going to a camp site where there's many, 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 many different tents. And God shows up, and because he's God, he's omnipresent, he can hang out in every tent with everybody. That's his intention. He has undivided attention as a father and so he comes to your tent, and I want to hang out with you. And I'm coming to your tent, and I want to hang out with you. I want to have some iced tea with you. I want to sit by the fire with you. I want to cook dinner with you. I want to go fishing with you. I want to go camping with you. I want to go hiking with you. Let's get on the bikes and go. That's God. And he wants a tabernacle. He wants to live in our tent. He wants to live inside of us. And so in order for God to live inside of us, some things need to be laid low and gotten rid of that are barriers to God's presence inside of us. So when we pray, we're inviting God. We're saying, Jesus, come in and take... Remove the maze inside of me that I've created that makes me think that I have to do this and this and this and this to be with you. 
Because that's not true, because Hebrews chapter 4 says, if I turn to him in just the nick of time, in that moment, I am in the presence of God. I can turn and worship, I can turn and be in the presence, I can return to him, and I can invite him to clear the temple inside of me. I've been reading this little uh, devotional guide that we introduced to you last fall called The Daily Office by Pete Scazzaro. And I've been reading it again this summer just because when I go through it, man, I just keep learning new and new and more things. And it, it has the seven pathways of emotional and spiritual healing in your life, and it takes you through it. So what I do is I, I watch one of the videos each week, I read the book, and I walk through the pathways because it's helping me grow up in Jesus, and it's helping me connect with God. And so I was reading one of the devotionals the other day, and I came across this little poem that was in it about letting Jesus clear your temple. It goes like this. I have a need of such a clearance as the Savior effected in the temple of Jerusalem, a riddance of clutter of what is secondary that blocks the way to the all-important central emptiness, which is filled with the presence of God alone. Prayer clears the pathway back to God. This summer, we've given you the little bookmark that you've seen. And uh, it's got a prayer pattern on it. The prayer pattern goes like this. Jesus, let my soul be transformed by the power of your grace so my life can be defined by purity and righteousness as I develop a passion to share your life-changing story with the world. Amen. I want us just to read this out loud together. I just wanted to start right now and just read it out loud together, starting with Jesus. Jesus, let my soul be transformed by the power of your grace so my life can be defined by purity and righteousness as I develop a passion to share your life-changing story with the world. Amen. Now I want you to do something just a little bit different. I'm going to push you on the ed- to the edge just a bit. I want you to take both your hands like this, and I want you to lay them out before you. And I want you to do what we do once in a while here at Daybreak called Palms Up Prayer. And I want you to show with your body what's inside your soul, that you want Jesus to come. And then I want us just to slowly and with great intention to read this together. Jesus, let my soul be transformed by the power of your grace so my life can be defined by purity and righteousness as I develop a passion to share your life-changing story with the world. Amen. Amen. I would challenge you to take the next 30 days and take that. There's nothing magical about this, but there is something mystical about it and something supernatural. To take every day, get up, Take that prayer pattern, lay it out, get your cup of coffee. It may be the only quiet moment you have that day. Amen? And just say that to God. Say, my life is open to you. I'm turning from myself, and I'm turning off other things, and I'm turning to you. And then finally, finding our way back to God demands that we embrace faith as the key to freedom. We embrace faith as the key to freedom. Romans 3.27 says this, Where then is boasting? It's excluded because of the law. He's talking about boasting of, I got myself on the right path back to God. I'm leading my life. Talking about boasting about, look at me. I got it going on, right? There's no boasting like that. 
the law that requires works. And he says, what is, what is, and he says, what is the intention of the law? No, because of the law that requires faith. You know, a lot of times we'll read the Bible, we'll look at the Old Testament law, we'll even look at the New Testament where it gives us instructions for holy living, like in Colossians 1, 2, and 3, and we'll read that, and with the best of intentions, we start to sketch out a plan in our heart and in our mind to live that way. And we start to try to to live a certain way to what? Please God and to be pleasing to Him in His sight. But what the writer of Romans says here is, no, the law was not given so that you could fulfill all these things and say, look, Jesus, A+, good scorecard. I did it. I got it all together. As a matter of fact, you remember the young ruler who came to Jesus and Jesus asked, and he asked Jesus, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, have you been keeping the law? And he said, I've kept all the law ever since I was a little kid. It says in Scripture, at that moment, Jesus had great compassion on him. Jesus' heart was broken for him because he knew, oh, you've got it all wrong. Since a child, you've missed the mark. Come on, man. Are you that out to lunch to think that you've kept all the law and God owes you? And it says his heart was broken for that young man. Because he was off the path, he was out of sync. And he thought, there was one more, what, what more thing can I do? I've done it all. And he said, admit that you haven't done it all. Admit that you haven't been at all. Admit that you've sinned. He couldn't do it. So Jesus had great compassion on him. Jesus says, and the Word of God says this again in the book of Hebrews, without faith it is impossible to what? Please God, without faith. The law wasn't given so that we could attempt to keep it and prove ourselves worthy of God's attention and his love. The law was given in some sense to show us that even our most valiant attempts without God are a bit off the mark. And over time and distance, they miss the mark. And eventually, a wall starts to be built where God intended a pathway to be instructed. But faith is the key to the freedom that we seek. The empowerment and direction to walk the path with God comes by faith. Romans 4 puts it this way. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Circle that, underline that. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies what? The ungodly, their faith is credited to them as righteousness. Now, it's easy for us to look back, if we don't read Scripture closely, and think that Abraham was just this great man of faith who never blew it. But if we start reading Scripture and we go back and look at it, we go, hold on there. That guy was a guy of faith? Yes, he was. Abraham was a man who struggled to grasp this elusive nature of faith. It says, when he was old and childless, God made a house call to him and his wife to tell them that they would become parents. And what did Abraham, the great father of faith, do? He laughed at God. He laughed at God. Matter of fact, he ends up calling his son, Isaac, laughter. That's what Isaac means, laughter. 
Abraham struggles with his faith. He works it like a muscle. He bends it, and at times it seems to be lost. But over the years, and even and especially in his later years, his faith grows stronger and stronger and stronger. Strong enough to the point of believing that God would bring his son back from the dead. And so he takes him to an altar and gets ready to sacrifice him. And God provides a ram. One of the first signs in the Old Testament, not the very first, but one of the first signs of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ in the thicket. In place of the boy, I give a ram that I provided because I saw that your son needed a way out. And I provided it. Until his dying day, Abraham is becoming a man of faith. At every turn in his life, he has to pull from the way of the world and what? Repent. Repentance is a lifestyle. Turn back to God. My dad used to have this little phrase down in his workshop in the basement. Faith is not faith until it's all you're holding on to. Sometimes that can be just a trite phrase, but other times it can be a mantra that guides your life. That faith becomes faith when you can't see the way back onto the expressway with God, but you take the ramp anyhow. And you turn and you worship, and you turn and you pray, and you turn and believe that there is a God who cares for you and who took your sin so seriously that he came down and he gave his only son, and then he sent his Holy Spirit out in the earth to chase you down, the hound of heaven, and to find you and to compel you to come into his family and to over and over again turn from your way to his way and find your way back to God. Yes, until his dying day, Abraham was becoming a man of faith. And that should be our mantra too. I'm becoming a person of faith. I'm always growing. I'm always learning. Like the time when I was lost in Newark and the only way back on the road to my destination took a leap of faith, God tells us to do that with our life. Because God really doesn't want to take us back into the same old road with him. Did you know that? He has new highways. He has new vistas. He has a deeper, fuller, richer time with us. He has new gifts. He has new people. He has new ways with the same Savior by our side. He has an adventure to take us on, a life-changing journey that indeed will change us from the inside out if we let him. So what did we learn this morning? We learned that repentance is a lifestyle and that when we find ourselves away from God, we need to turn and we need to keep turning and turning and turning. We need to turn in worship taking our sin as seriously as God did. We need to turn and pray, trusting that Jesus alone can pave the pathway back. And we need to turn in faith, seeing faith as a pathway to freedom. And next week we'll talk more about faith and freedom next week. This is kind of just a lead into that, this last point. Most of all, getting back on the pathway with God means I take my life out of my hands and I place it back into His. The one who created me, crafted me, made me, knows me. The one who set up the center of my bullseye and knows exactly how I should live my life. I give it back to him and I let him come down and I let him lead me 
in a life-changing journey. It's God's word tells us that faith was not just for people of long ago. As a matter of fact, Romans 4 tells us that faith is for us today. His word is for us today. His spirit is for us today. It says in Romans 4, 23 through 25, these words, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised for our life and for our justification. And if we turn to him today, God will credit unto us our account the righteousness of God, and he will pick up every arrow that has missed the mark, and he'll stab him right in the middle and say, in Jesus Christ, you hit the mark. In his righteousness alone, you can walk with him, and he will pave a pathway for you and he to have a life-changing journey led by his spirit. Let's bow our heads and talk to God in prayer. Lord, to be perfectly honest, this morning we often find ourselves turned around by life and out of sync with you. As this time of worship closes this morning, we sense that you're drawing us back to you, that you're speaking to us. Lord, we, don't take our, we, we do take our sins seriously, and so we bow before you with a repentant spirit. We sense you drawing us close as we're praying is requiting ourselves before you. We give you permission to rid our inner man of anything that will be blocking a face-to-face, heart-to-heart, eye-to-eye encounter with you. We're going to take a leap of faith with great hope that our relationship with you will become deeper and fuller and richer over the summer and in the days ahead. Jesus, thanks for being our closest and our best friend and for paving our pathway home through your broken body and your shed blood. Truly, there is no greater love than to lay down your life for a friend. What a friend we found in you, Jesus. Amen. sin
Beautiful, thank you. Um, we like to give you guys a chance every week to respond to how God's been speaking to you personally. And I know for me, um, I really soaked in a lot of truths this morning. And I don't know what it was that hit home for you, uh, whether it was part of Pastor Joel's message or a, part, one of the songs that we sang, but I need to really encourage you that as beautiful as all of the moments are in our weekend services, this might just be one of the most important times for you and your relationship with God, because we want you to take what you've heard and say, okay, God, now how do I respond to this? Like, what action do I take to follow up with this truth you've laid on my heart? And it could be something that you could follow up with today, or it could be something that takes a long time to follow up with. But I want to challenge you this morning to tune into God's voice and give Him permission to speak to you and give you direction and to take next steps in your journey with Him. And so for some of you, I just want to give the opportunity, if you'd appreciate someone praying with you today and hearing your heart one-on-one, -on -one, uh, we have a team of prayer partners that's right in the back, uh, in the green room actually, if you want to head out in just a moment and down the hall, they'll be there waiting for you. Um, but inside your program guide is a response card. Uh, go ahead and pull that out right now with me. And on the back is a place for you to record uh, what it is that God spoke to you. And at the very beginning of today's message, uh, Pastor Joel read from Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And in my outline I wrote, God, what is, what is my way? Like what is the way that I keep turning to instead of yours? And then at the very end, I was encouraged. Uh, thank you, Joel, just for the challenge of God saying, His ways are new and fresh every day. He doesn't want to take us down the same old ways. And He wants to bring us back to Him. He's pursuing us. And so today, these are the, some of the things that I'm thinking about and processing and what my next step is in my journey with Him and, and joining Him in His new way for my life. So let's take a few moments and write down, record a prayer, um, and what God's been saying to you. <laughs> 